So we've come up to the fourth night of the retreat. Good to see so many of you are surviving. Please explain vijnana further. And then how to distinguish vijnana from vedana, sanya, jaitana, manasikara. Well, these are all namadhammas, qualities. Um, of the mind. Vijnana usually is translated as consciousness. Consciousness usually arises dependent on uh, stimulus. So we have eye consciousness. Chaku vijnana. Chaku means I. Eye consciousness arises when you have a healthy eye, obviously a functioning healthy eye. You have light, not in a dark room or something. Eye consciousness arises seeing. Sota vijnana, hearing. Ear consciousness, an ear and a sound, sota vijnana. Ganda vijnana, smell, shiva vijnana, taste, bodhapha, touch, mano vijnana, the mind itself, because the mind can be sensitive in itself when a thought or an object arises into it. And vijnana is consciousness, it's that ability of the mind to know. We, the mind is that which knows. And the body doesn't know anything, that's rupa. You can think about it, you're your hair doesn't know anything. Your nails don't know anything. Your bones don't know anything. They're just material elements. It's the mind that knows. And then you have the contents of the mind. You have Vedana is feeling, pleasant unpleasant, neutral. Sanya is memory or perception. And these two uh, mental factors, Vedana and Sanya, arise every moment of consciousness, whether you realize it or not, whether you can separate them out or not. There's always feeling and perception present the most res refined state of consciousness is 
perhaps the what they call the eighth jhana samapati, the most refined state, meditative state of absorption that one can attain. And the Buddha attained this practicing before he became enlightened. Neva sanyana sanya ayantya ayatana. Neva sanyana sanya, neither perception nor non perception. So the mind is the most subtle, refined state of consciousness where it's neither perceiving nor not perceiving. So there's kind of half perception there. The mind is fully knowing, fully awake, aware. But that normal sense of perception, perceiving an object is almost so, it's so subtle, it's faded, faded, it's no longer very important. So we can experience very subtle states of consciousness and very coarse states of consciousness. When we're suffering, we say dukkha, a mind state, when the consciousness is of suffering, we have dukkha vetana. So maybe it's arising in association with uh, touch. So you maybe have cold air in the morning. Tomorrow morning, probably be cold. So you have cold air, the touch of cold on your skin might bring you some unpleasant sensation, dukkha vetana. Or as you're meditating, you might have a memory, which is sanya, of a person or a situation in the past that brought you anger. You know, somebody said something and you can remember those words and your perception is, negative perception they have with the memory arising, you have the unpleasant mental feeling that's internal, what we call domanasa vetana, and so on. Every moment of consciousness will be accompanied by feeling and perception. When we practice meditation, the reason we feel more calm and happy because we're directing mindfulness, this, this quality, recollecting a wholesome object. So you recollect the Buddha or your breath, an object that when you become mindful continuously of that object, the mind becomes peaceful. Sukha Vetana arises. So your sense of mental stress and even physical pain can also fade away from your consciousness at that time. Sense of agitation, worry, stress all fades away with the presence of mindfulness and the pleasant feelings and the pleasant object that you're focusing on. And you get pity and sukha arising. Sukhavetana. The act of putting the mind onto the meditation object is also jaitana involved, intention, 
Chaitanya means intention. So you're directing your mind to meditate on an object, to establish mindfulness on an object. So that's your intention. Intention can be wholesome or unwholesome, skillful or unskillful. So, so you're meditating with a wholesome intention, with a wish to free your mind from suffering and to develop your concentration and then your wisdom. It's a wholesome intention. But then as you're meditating, maybe you hear the sound of somebody else making a loud noise near you. And your intention can change quickly. So you might say, oh, who made that loud noise? I wish they didn't make that loud noise. That your intention then is changed. Maybe it becomes more unskillful. Oh, who is that person? And you might have a negative thought directed to the, that person. Manasikara means attention. So normally it's there in the mind, the ability of the mind just to attend to objects. So you attend to your thought, you attend to a sound, a sight, a f sensation. But this is something that needs to be trained. So we're training, the way we develop wisdom is by developing this quality of putting attention onto an object with wisdom or skillfully. So the Buddha's word is yoniso manasi kara, wisely attending to something. So wisely attending. We have a chant, maybe we'll do it one day, where we practice yoniso manasi kara, wisely attending to the four requisites or the basic necessities of life. So when we come to eat our food at lunchtime, you bring up the reflection, wisely attending to this food I eat, uh, not for pleasure, not for fattening, not for beautification, only for the maintenance and nourishment of this body, for keeping it healthy, for helping with the holy life, with Dhamma practice, for overcoming harmful or painful feelings that have arisen from hunger. So thinking thus, wisely reflecting, I will allay these painful feelings without overeating so that I may live or continue to live blamelessly and at ease. And this is the reflection, a wise reflection the Buddha gave for anyone living in a monastery eating food, alms food, because we're all eating alms food during this period. You're all like monks and nuns. So obviously the food has been offered out of kindness, generosity, cooked up, offered, cooked up, freely given to us. So... To, live, uh, to eat that food blamelessly, we have to treat it as part of the practice. The way we do that is wisely reflect on the food that we're eating. Try to eat the right amount, not to overindulge, not to be 
you know, let other motivations, other jaitana, other intentions come into while we're eating. So it's not for eating just to make ourselves look good or um, eating just to indulge for the taste of it, just for the fun of it, the pleasure of it. We're developing a wise attitude towards food. That's an example of Yoniso Manasikara. We teach our mind this way to understand truth by skillfully directing it to attend to what we're doing. If you're meditating, then you attend to your meditation object. If you're doing vipassana meditation, then you're attending to the qualities of anicca, dukkha, anatta. You wisely attend to the... When we say wisely attend, it means you notice you pick up on, you recollect, you remember, and so on, certain qualities of your experience. So say you're meditating and a thought pops up into your head, you can wisely attend to that thought. You can see that thought is something that's a Nietzsche, it's impermanent, it arises, you think it, so it may be a thought, I feel tired. I feel peaceful, or what was that sound, or what will I do later today? Whatever the thought is, you can notice it begins, you say the words in your mind, and then it ends, ceases. If you follow it through, wisely attending to that thought, then you can be aware of its impermanence, just arises, passes away. And there's a space, and maybe there's another thought arises, where you're attending to it wisely by contemplating it as impermanent. Or you can contemplate it as dukkha in the sense, the disturbing nature of that thought and how in itself it's unstable, it doesn't last, breaks up, disappears. So it's in itself, it's not a source of any kind of lasting happiness. It doesn't mean to say a thought is wrong or bad, but in itself it's not something that is stable or that we can base our happiness on entirely. It's anatta, a thought arises, passes away according to conditions. So you hear a sound and then you have a thought, what was that? That's the condition for the thought arising. We have a feeling you have a feeling somewhere in your body, a pain or some kind of a tight, tense feeling. Then you start to think about it. Oh, what is this feeling? Why is it here? What is this cause? That feeling has prompted the thought, maybe a painful feeling. Or it could be a pleasurable feeling. You're sitting, meditating, and you feel quite calm. Maybe you have tingling sensation or your mind becomes very light, the body feels very light, or you have tears form in your eyes. So that experience leads on to a thought, oh, what is this? What is this experience? The thought arises dependent on conditions. So in that sense we say it's not self. It's not 
something we can take as a self. It's more an experience that has a, a prompt, a cause for it to arise and pass away. And that's just nature. Things arise, pass away according to conditions. Or a pain. You sit for a long time on the ground and you get a pain in your knee. That's conditional, that feeling it arises because your body is in a certain posture for a long period, so maybe the blood flow is interrupted or there's pressure. So that painful feeling arises. We say it's not self in the sense it's, it has its causes, it arises, we're aware of it. When the causes change, so you change posture, get up, the pain passes away. So in that sense, it's not self. It's not something that you can say, I own this pain. You know, temporarily, you, you might say, oh, I own this pain, I am this pain. But if you look deeper, you can see it's a conditioned thing. It depends on certain conditions for that pain to come up. If, there's, if those conditions are not there, then that particular kind of pain will not arise. So it's not self. So we're looking at our experience in this way, seeing how all these aspects of the mind, feeling, memory, intention, wise reflection, they all are, we say, conditions of mind, objects of mind, things that we can know, but they all have their causes and they're all impermanent, arise, pass away. Even the good things arise, pass away. There's a lot more we could say on all of this, but uh, for now, I'll just leave that there. Ajahn, could you kindly explain the importance of noble silence at all times when cultivating the mind? If I go into noble silence, there'll be no explanation, will there? So obviously, silence isn't the only part of the practice. Otherwise, no teaching would get done. Noble silence is helpful for us as human beings because we have this habit of verbalizing everything even when you practice noble silence, the chatter goes on inside, doesn't it? We have a running commentary on our life, on our experience. A lot of it is very mundane and random and things just pop up. Some of it is very strong. The intention, we're talking about Jaitana just now, sometimes the intention is very strong. So you have a very strong state of mind, very important, could be very wholesome, you have a very strong intention to do something good or it could be a very negative intention and it prompts a lot of verbalization anyway we have a lot of verbalization coming up with thought and obviously that comes out in our speech our behavior often and a lot of it is habit habitual and so it's actually a condition for uh, 
lack of mindfulness. It can be a cause. Habitual behavior often leads to a lack of mindfulness. We're not very clear what we're saying, what we're doing, why, where are, where things are coming from. We're not clear on the intention. We're not clear on precisely what we're doing. So the practice of mindfulness and clear comprehension, sati sampajanya, starts to clarify these things. And at first it's helpful to practice noble silence if you have a good situation like this, a monastery, a meditation retreat. It just improves that clarity where you can see your own mind, your own intentions, your own thoughts more clearly if you're not displaying them outwardly, you're not speaking on them. You're gathering your energy, turning it inwards. You find if you practice noble silence, at first it can be difficult because we have the habit of always saying it, speaking. Every thought comes into our mind, we say it out. If there's no one around, we can end up talking to ourselves sometimes. If there's someone around, a useful uh, person to listen to us, then we'll tell them everything, depending on how close we are. Uh, you can sometimes even get strangers just opening up because there's so much to come out, open up to each other. When you practice mindfulness, it's helpful to just restrain that tendency, that habit, just reduce it down. And noble silence doesn't necessarily mean never speaking, it just means minimizing your speech and making your speech noble in the sense, well, if there's a real need to speak, you may speak an emergency or could ask a dumber question or if it's appropriate, you might speak. But generally, you're practicing silence so that you can heighten your mindful awareness of your own mind, your own intentions and thoughts, and contemplate them, see them more clearly. And people find it very helpful, uh, but it does require some effort. You have to keep restraining yourself, you have to keep reminding yourself, oh, no need to speak. But once you get in the habit of it, you realize some, sometimes we don't need to say everything, do we? Sometimes silence is golden. Silence can be very peaceful, can be very liberating. And you can see some of the habit of why we speak is just to fill in the space of our minds and our lives. You know, we, when we're not used to noble silence, we feel uncomfortable being silent. We usually assume something's wrong, either we feel embarrassed or uncomfortable, or if someone else is silent, we often think, oh, they must be angry. <laughs> and we look at them and say, oh, they're not speaking, they must be angry, they must be in a mood. But people don't speak for a different reason. Sometimes it's because they're experiencing peace of mind, and they've just got nothing to say. And they're happy. And they're still functioning and going around doing their business, walking around, eating, doing their meditation. But maybe they're peaceful enough inside, there's nothing to say. They know the routine, they know what they're doing, so there's nothing to discuss. So silence can come from peace of mind. It can come from a mood, so sometimes when people are very depressed, they withdraw, or they're very angry, don't say anything. So there are different kinds of silence, and that we have to get to know for ourselves what our motivation is. But many people find having 
worked hard to be, practice noble silence, get used to it for a few days in a retreat, after a while it becomes quite pleasant. You don't have to speak about everything to other people. As long as other people understand what you're doing, they give you the space to be silent, then it's very easy. It makes life simple. You just go about your business without having to chatter a lot. Gives you more energy. Often you, you conserve your energy by not speaking. You can direct it internally rather than just chatting to others. Can save a lot of misunderstanding. When we speak a lot, we generally, you know, we, we often fall into misunderstanding, miscommunication. We affect each other with a lot of speech and not always affect each other for the good. But obviously speech can be used well. So the Buddha didn't say to practice Dhamma, don't speak. He said practice right speech. So we practice sometimes speaking, sometimes not. But we consider what is the right thing to say at the right time, in the right way. And we look at our intention behind our speech. Why do we speak? Is our motivation skillful? Or sometimes it's just a display of our own suffering or... Um, some negative mind state, we let it out in our speech. We have to learn this. You notice when we do practice noble silence, because we think so much, you know, sometimes instead of looking at our own minds, we start looking at other people and they're not speaking. You think, I wonder what they're thinking. If we become really kind of arrogant with it, I know what they're thinking. I know what they're thinking. Sometimes we become paranoid, you think. I wonder if they're thinking about me. Uh, or I wonder what they think about me. Uh, you go and ask them and they're not thinking about you at all. It's just our own mind creates so much. There's one monk. Met in Malaysia is talking about his time when he was with Ajahn Chah as a young monk. One of the problems when you're with a teacher, you're a young monk. The teacher often, they're more restrained than you, so sometimes you've got a lot to say and the teacher doesn't say very much because they're not uh, caught in a mood in the same way as us. So sometimes you, know, you talk to a teacher and they say very little, they're very quiet. And they're giving you a chance to reflect and see your own mind. And that's quite common. And then there's this time, this monk, he was junior monk. He wanted to stay with Ajahn Chah, because most people like to stay with Ajahn Chah, the teacher. But Ajahn Chah sent him away to another monastery for the range retreat. So he's a bit upset about that, but he thought, well, I've just got to accept the teacher has sent me to this monastery as part of my training I'll accept that I'll just practice the best I can then at the end of the range retreat came back to see Ajahn Chah at Ajahn Chah's monastery and he wanted to ask permission to come back and live with Ajahn Chah but even before he'd asked he said I bet he won't give me permission I know what he's going to say he's not going to give me permission I know it's hopeless and he kind of battered himself into sort of depression before he'd even asked. And then when he bowed and he was about to ask Ajahn Chah, he sort of looked at Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah just looked at him very ordinary. 
didn't say a word and he asked Ajahn Chah, he said, can I come back to stay here at Wabapong? Ajahn Chah just carried on looking at him, didn't say anything and he thought, I bet that means I can't come back. Okay, that's it. Oh. So he just bowed again and left. He was crushed, you know, I can't go back. Got to go back to this other monastery. So he went back to the other monastery for four months. Then he came back to see Ajahn Chah again. I think there was a, a reason he had to come back and stay with Ajahn Chah after four months. And he came into the monastery, saw Ajahn Chah, he bowed. Ajahn Chah was sitting there with exactly the same look. He just said, where'd you go? So for four months he stayed in this monastery. Ajahn Chah hadn't sent him there. Ajahn Chah just sat there and didn't say go. He just assumed he did. He just thinking too much. We do that, don't we? When, we're, when somebody is silent, we're sort of wondering what they're up to. Instead of looking at our own mind, we're always thinking about them, trying to work them out. Sometimes thinking the best, thinking the worst. Ajahn Chah was asked how much tranquility is required for contemplation. Ajahn Chah replied, enough tranquility for the presence of mind. Ajahn, could you kindly explain what it is meant by the presence of mind? Well, it's just a phrase to describe when mindfulness is present. You know your mind in the present moment. You have the ability to recollect yourself, what you're doing in the present moment. So it's the opposite of being very scattered, daydreaming, um, caught up in a mood that has taken your mind away from the present moment. Uh, it's the opposite of sleepiness or drowsiness. You know, all the different experiences where you lose your mindfulness, they are not having presence of mind. Presence of mind means being awake and aware and knowing yourself. So Ajahn Chah had one famous um, reflection to help us establish presence of mind. He said if you're, you know, you're tending to lose your presence of mind, your mindfulness, just stop, ask yourself, what am I doing right now? What am I doing? So if you're doing breathing meditation, and you're daydreaming, say, stop, say, oh, what am I doing? And then you answer yourself, oh, I'm practicing mindfulness of breathing. You, you re-establish your presence of mind that way. You ask yourself, what am I doing? Then you answer, oh, I'm practicing mindfulness of breathing. That's giving you mindfulness, which is asking the question. It's giving you clear comprehension, the answer a clear understanding of what you're doing. If you're eating food in the middle of your meal when your mind starts drifting off, thinking about other things, other people, other places, if you want to re-establish mindfulness, you stop in the middle of your meal, you stop and say, what am I doing? Oh, I'm eating food. It brings you back to the present moment, to the tasting, to the looking at the food, chewing the food. If you're having a bath, you know, what am I doing? Oh, I'm bathing. 
you're brushing your teeth. What am I doing? I'm brushing my teeth. You'll notice all the time the mind is slipping away from the present moment, isn't it? Goes off into thoughts about other things. And the mindfulness practice is always about bringing it back, re-establishing presence of mind, whether it's in meditation or just doing our daily chores, going around. You're talking, you see, nowadays we have multitasking, it's kind of fashionable, but it's a bit. It doesn't really work, does it? See people sort of mobile phone in one hand, baby in another hand, dog at the foot, <laughs> juggling many things around, multitasking and mind is all over the place maybe. You know, we, we tend to do that, we tend to let our mind get scattered and try and do many things and end up in a little bit of a mess sometimes. So just being a, bringing, having that ability to bring your mind back to the present moment. What am I doing right now? You see, sometimes it's a real struggle. The mind is very stubborn. It just wants to shoot away again. doesn't want to be in the present moment. Maybe it'll react, say, oh, it's boring, or no, I want to do this, think about that. Or just does it automatically. Off it goes. So it's a bit of a struggle sometimes. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes the mind very stubborn, just constantly running away. And that's why we practice, you know, practicing to bring up more mindfulness, more presence of mind. And the result of having presence of mind is one feels more calm, more has one, one has more self-control, one feels better. The result of a lot of unmindful thinking, getting caught up into different moods, scattered thinking, distracted thinking. And the result of that is the mind loses its energy, becomes stressed, tired, worn out. So it's in our own interest to practice more mindfulness. Is it correct to say that an enlightened being is an arahant? Yep, that's usually how we describe it. If I'm not mistaken, according to Mahayana tradition, some enlightened beings delay their Nibbana and return to the world to save others from this sea of suffering. Can you please explain this from Paticca Samupada? Hmm, that's a profound question. It's true, um, we talk about the Bodhisattva, the being who's um, made an aspiration to become enlightened, become an enlightened Buddha. And they're building their Bharami, following their path maybe over many, many, many lifetimes. Um, and the reason they don't yet attain Nibbāna, they don't finally cut off all their craving and attachment and enter Nibbāna, is because of the very aspiration to become a Buddha keeps them going, keeps them coming back life after life. 
and it's a very noble aspiration, uh, but it will take a long time. And during that long time, building Barami, helping people, going through a lot of suffering, sometimes practitioners reach a point where they say, enough, now is the time just for Nibbana. They've reached the point where they just see so much suffering in, in being born and living over and over again, even though they've been helping people, they think enough. Or they think, oh, the world needs a few more arahants, not enough arahants. So they give up their aspiration and practice just in that life for the end of suffering. And if they're successful, they purify their mind of the kilesas, give up greed, anger, delusion. Through their meditation and practice, then they we say they reach enlightenment and the enlightened being does understand the Paticca Samubhada, this process of dependent arising, how suffering arises dependent on conditions. So in short we say because of the presence of ignorance, avicca, in the mind, the mind doesn't understand truth, see truth, it's ignorant, it's unmindful, unwise. Because of that starting condition, then we get uh, dependent on sense contact. We have feeling arising all the time through every moment of our day. And from feeling, because of the presence of avicca, craving arises. Craving is liking, disliking, wanting things to last for a long time, wanting to get rid of things that we don't like, and so on. Different kinds of craving arise based on our feelings which come from all the sense contact we have in this world, living in the world, the different experiences we have. Craving arises, that's a condition for attachment, the hardening of craving. We become attached to things. I like this, don't like this, this is good, that's bad. This is for me, this is not for me. This is myself, this is not myself. All kinds of views coming not from wisdom but from ignorance and craving become fixed in the mind which leads on to becoming, leads on to birth, leads on to future birth. This in short is a Paticca Samubhada, it's a, a round of, or a cycle of um, conditioned arising, how ignorance conditions, craving, attachment, more birth. And they say this is the heart of why human beings keep coming back, being born over and over again. But it's quite a profound subject that can't really just discuss in a brief answer to a question, but the Buddha said it's the heart of the teachings, so it's worth investigating. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about it in other days. Ajahn Chah was a very practical teacher because he saw how people like to spend a lot of time you know, kind of imagining and thinking, mm, should I follow the Bodhisattva path or should I become an Arahant or what, what's the best for me? And we like to sort of sit around thinking about these things and you know, it can be a cause of suffering or 
can become cause for doubt, can become cause for sort of suffering. Sometimes you get people saying, well, I'm following the Bodhisattva path, I'm going to save all other beings. And someone else says, I'm following the Arahant path, I want to be enlightened in this very life. And the Bodhisattva says, oh, so selfish, only thinking of yourself. But really, it's just arguing over words, isn't it? You know, the true Bodhisattva doesn't waste time sitting around arguing about who's an Arahant, who's a Bodhisattva. They get on with their practice. So, you know, Ajahn Chah used to say, you know, don't be a Bodhisattva, don't be an Arahant, don't try to be anything, just be mindful of the present moment. And because it's still, on this level, it's just concepts and ideas, isn't it? Bodhisattva, Arahant. Theravada, Mahayana. When you're practicing mindfulness of one breath in, one breath out, there's no Arahant, Bodhisattva, Mahayana, anything. You're just mindful of the breath going in and out, the breath element, and there's awareness. So, you know, it, it is interesting to discuss these things, but at the same time, they can um, create a bit of confusion for us. I like to, in Thailand, living in Thailand where there's a huge Sangha, many monks, great monks and nuns, and you, you know, you don't know who's the Bodhisattva, who's an Arahant. You always get young monks going, is he a Bodhisattva, is he an Arahant? Kind of who's who of the great teachers, kind of, they even have books, books like Lok Tip and Palang Chiwit. These kind of Dhamma magazines. So in in Australia we have you know magazines about celebrities with photos and gossip about their lives. In Thailand they have monk magazines with photos and gossip about their lives. And some of the gossip is is he a bodhisattva? Is he a arahant? Has he got psychic powers? Is he this? Is he that? And people get, they love to discuss this and get all caught up. Again, it's the mind working overtime, isn't it? So go and they go and these magazines, they organize tour buses. You get six tour buses with a few hundred people. They go around some of these celebrity agents and everybody <laughs> makes offerings and sits there listening and then they're all in the background going, can he read our minds? Can he see our karma? Does he know what's going to happen next year? <laughs> Nobody listens to the Dhamma tour. They're just all wondering whether the monk can read their mind or not. How much merit will I make offering to this monk? Yes. There was a group like that came to see Ajahn Chah once, but Ajahn Chah was out. He was in England. And they all came in these buses, big tour buses, came into the monastery and they started taking offerings off the bus. There's hundreds of people, they had lots of trays of offerings and big pots of food to offer to the monks. They just starting to carry it all into the hall. And they'd been to many other monks and now it was their turn to see Ajahn Chah, the great monk. And then one of the monks said, oh, actually he's not here, he's in England. And the leader of the group said, oh, he's not here. Okay, back on the bus. And all the young monks, they're looking at these pots of food that were going back on the bus. And, oh, I thought we were going to get a proper meal today. Because in those days, there wasn't so much food. 
Buddhism talks about rebirth and non-self. So what is reborn? Is there a, no one there anyway? <laughs> is it the mind or the mind's tendencies? What is it that gets reborn if not self? This is a very common question and a very valid question. It's um, obviously when we talk about the Dhamma and the practice, we have these two ways of speaking. We say the conventional way, the normal way of talking. Yes, there's a person. There's somebody who's born and they have a name and a personal history, a body, a mind. That's us. We're sitting here and we know we exist. We can touch ourselves and say, yes, I'm here. So there seems to be a self, a person. But then when you develop meditation, you're looking more deeply at this thing that we call a self, the body, the mind. And in effect, what you look, as you look more deeply, you investigate more deeply, you see there's really nothing there that is enduring or lasting that you can say is some kind of permanent self. So the way the Buddha taught us to see non-self is they will look, ask questions. Uh, is, is this body a self? Is it me, mine, or not? And you know, the more you contemplate it, the more you realize, well, the body comes from the four elements, earth, air, fire, water. It's not really anything you can say as a self because it's constantly changing, degenerating, and it will eventually go back to the earth. So you could say, while we have a body, while we're here in the world, well, it seems you can say, yes, there's a self. There's a conventional term. There's a self. But when your mind is very clear and mindfulness is strong and wisdom is very clear, you can at the same time see, well, there's actually no self in this body. It's just four elements. So there's these two levels. There's the conventional self, and then there's the ultimate reality where there's no self and one practicing gets used to seeing these two levels these two ways of talking at the same time but obviously at, at first it's a bit confusing the mind even more subtle even more confusing you know, the mind can't even bring it out and see it or look at it it's something you just have to know through training in in awareness in mindfulness and then wise reflection you get to know your own mind. So we say, my own mind. And obviously at first we say, well, my mind, I think, I feel. And on the conventional, the ordinary level, that's true, that's correct. But again, we're looking more deeply. The, the more we improve our mindfulness, we start to show ourselves the subtleties of this mind, the truth about this mind, and we say, hmm. This mind is a conditioned thing. There's this quality of knowing, and then we have a thought, feeling, memories, but these things pop up, go away again. They come up and go away according to conditions. That's why the very first uh, realization that Anya Kondanya had, when the Buddha gave his very first teaching, they say the realization was he saw uh, what the Buddha was pointing to, that all things that arise from a cause must pass away. When that cause changes, then that thing will pass away, whether it's 
physical body, this arises from a cause, we have conception, and we're born and we eat food, these are the causes that keep this body going or bring it into existence, keep it going. Then we ha go through life and we die. So our body is born, it must die. A thought arises, but it must pass away. A feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, arises, but it must pass away. That which is subject to arising is subject to cessation. This is where you see not self. As if, if you are your thoughts, or you are your feelings, or you are this body, then you should be able to just keep that there. The feeling, just hold it there. Say, hold on. Got a pleasant feeling, just hold it there. But you can't. It's something that arises, passes away according to its condition. So on this subtle level, this more refined level, we're seeing what we say non-self or the lack of a, a fixed, permanent self. But on the conventional level, yes, we can say, oh, there is a self, there's a person. This person has come about through karma. We make karma and that's what generates the next life, good and bad karma. And attachment comes. We can even we even attach to the good karma we make. So like we were saying earlier, we have a bodhisattva makes the aspiration to become a Buddha. That's good karma, a very wholesome aspiration to become a Buddha to help all other beings. But it's a karma that leads to more birth. Even the most refined karma is, is leading to birth. Uh, let alone more coarse, more ordinary karma. So we attach to our eyes and what we can see. We like beautiful things, we dislike uh, ugly things that we see, that we hear, we taste, we touch, we smell. These are, you could say, all micro-selves arising. When you like something, you, you're born into the quality of liking. I like this food. You become a person who is liking food. You become that food and the liking for that food, the, the mood that arises as you're liking that food. It's like a micro-self arises at that point. You're born at that point. And that, that tendency will carry on, won't it? You like one kind of food, it'll be a condition for you to like it again, like again, and maybe seek more and different kinds of food. But the, the liking of food well, it can carry on through your life. When you die, the physical body goes. So that supporting condition for the mind in this life stops, but then your mind it doesn't just stop there, does it? The mind has still has all its karma, all this, all this karmic impressions made through that life are still there. They've affected the mind and they're, they're leading you on to, you might say, literally seek more of the same or even better if you can get it. So, you know, you're still, the mind at death still likes good food. <laughs> it still likes pleasant sounds and sights. It still wants things. It still dislikes unpleasant experiences. That doesn't change at death. Just the body which supports the mind stops functioning. It's gone. But the mind, as if, wanders on looking for more. That's the f a power of craving attachment leads into next birth. And literally, next birth, you want more and you want better. So you know, most people, if they haven't developed insight and attain the path yet, when they die they're at least hoping for a heavenly rebirth. They have oh, a lot more happiness than as a human being. You know, if, if anyone 
metadata and the devata described a heavenly rebirth. You know, everyone says, yep, that's what I want. <laughs> that's the karma that we build up. We want to be experiencing pleasure and that leads into the next birth. We want, we want more. Only the Arya Pugla has seen, whoa, this wanting more and keeping getting bored is actually, there's more suffering involved than the pleasure. You get tired of all this wanting and all this pleasure. Pleasure is very temporary. It just comes and goes, comes and goes. And you have to spend a lot of time seeking. You think how, how, many, how many hours a day you have to work, get money, get tired, go home, look after the family, and then you maybe get a little bit of pleasure. <laughs> Next day you have to get up and do it all again. You go through a life, you're just starting to enjoy things, and oh, you're old. That's what the Arya Pugla sees. Oh, a lot of suffering in this. They, they, get, they get tired of it, so they don't want to be re reborn again. Nibbana becomes much more attractive. When you're still caught into pleasure-seeking, Nibbana seems boring and dull. Oh, Nibbana doesn't sound attractive. Just go into a state of emptiness. The mind is just sort of kind of pure and clear, but not really having much fun. No, 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 no. That doesn't sound very good. <laughs> As an idea, it doesn't sound good, but as an experience, if you've experienced letting go of your craving and attachment, even for a few minutes, you know, oh, this is much better than following craving and attachment and the peace of uh, a peaceful mind. So as you practice, you know, that's what you're doing is little by little, you're cutting off the causes for further rebirth, even just a little bit at a time. You're doing that. So you let go of one bit of craving, one bit of greed, one bit of anger, one bit of worry, one bit of attachment to whatever. You're reducing the causes for future rebirth. So if you do that enough, little by little, you're bringing your mind to the point where it, it, it will not be reborn. Or it will bring you to, the, to Nibbana, little by little. They say the Arya Pugala finds pleasure in Nibbana. They find pleasure in letting go of craving and attachment and the things of this world. They say an unenlightened person, we're all unenlightened people, we don't see much pleasure in that. We see pleasure in accumulating experiences, getting more, we want more, more pleasure, more things of this world. And that's why we suffer. The Arya Pugla doesn't suffer because they can see, they put everything in its place and all. All that this world has to offer, it's only that much. It doesn't last forever. So their mind, little by little, is detaching from the world. The causes for rebirth, little by little, are diminishing. A sotapanna still, they say, maybe at most seven more lifetimes. Because there's still a certain amount of craving and attaching affecting the mind. But they're not going to make any uh, strong karma that would uh, um, become an obstacle on their path. They're not going to make any mistakes, as it were. 
but they're still practicing vipassana, letting go of greed, anger and delusion that's arising. If their mindfulness and wisdom are very strong, maybe they let go of it very quickly. So maybe only one life, some sort of panas, only reborn one life. What is sati? What are some ways to pr practice mindfulness in lay life? How does it aid meditation? Well, you could say sati is the heart of meditation. It's this quality, mindfulness, presence of mind. And it's what leads this heart, this mind directly to Nibbana. You know, the presence of sati developed maintained uh, gives you the chance to see this mind to see where suffering is arising to let go of the causes of suffering and when you see a thought or a mood you grasp at it and you're suffering with it then you naturally want to let go it's mindfulness allows us to do that how to practice in daily life that's the hardest thing, isn't it? Maintaining mindfulness at all times. It's the hardest thing. When we're in a meditation hall like this and we meditate well, we can maintain some mindfulness. As soon as you go out of the hall, the mind is off, isn't it? Thinking about the next thing you're going to do, talking, go away, do other business mind is going away so it's the hardest thing in the world is to maintain mindfulness that's why we have to practice in all postures you know, Jen Chao always used to say standing, walking, sitting, lying down keep bringing up mindfulness in all postures at all times as you fall asleep, fall asleep mindfully as you wake up, wake up mindfully re-establish your mindfulness you're eating, you're bathing, you're walking, you're sitting, you're reading, you're talking. It's all an opportunity to develop more mindfulness. So basically it's a quality that you can never have enough of. It's never wrong. We can always say, what do I do now? Oh, practice mindfulness. And obviously you can be mindful of many things. You can be mindful of your posture mindful of your speech, mindful of your thoughts and intentions, mindful of a meditation object. You use mindfulness directed to something, to an object, to a task. You could be mindful of work that you're doing. I'm driving a car, so you become mindful of driving a car. Printing at a computer, you can be mindful of that. So you direct your mindfulness to know something about your experience from moment to moment. You know your body, you know your mind, your thoughts, your feelings. You know a particular task you're doing, washing dishes, eating food. The more you practice it, the more it shows you the times or the periods when you're not mindful. If you become mindful for a while, then you lose it or you become aware or not very mindful. And you know when I'm not very mindful, more suffering arises, more stress, more worry, more anxiety, more anger, more greed. You start to see the results where mindfulness is weak, what happens? And then you want to 
develop more mindfulness because you realize, oh, it's a very valuable quality. During my sitting yesterday, I suddenly was aware of the peaceful energy in the hall and my mind felt like it was absorbing this rippling energy into my mind. As I absorb more and more, my mind has a sense of lifting upwards higher and higher, reached a point that I was only aware of the very deep, peaceful, happy state. There was no breath or place in the mind's knowing. However, it started on its own to slide back to a more coarse sense of breath and body sensations by itself. Should I hold on to the breath while the mind is lifting up in order for the happy, peaceful state to advance further? Or should I follow like before, get absorbed into the awareness of the changing mind state. Thank you, and I offer to share the happiness to all the Sangha and people on retreat. The best thing, if you're not sure what to do, is always maintain awareness on the breath. However subtle the breath is, just keep following that, keep returning to that. Even if you feel like you're floating or the the body disappears, whatever, just keep going to the breath. Or if you can't find the breath, go to that spot where it disappeared from your awareness. There must be a point where you are focusing. So even if the breath is gone, you just go back to that point, keep your mind there as long as you can. If it's a peaceful, happy state, then just enjoy it and maintain it, preserve it as long as you can. What we tend to do is often we, our own kilesas bring up doubt or worry. What should I do next? What happens now? So try to just hold your attention on the mind itself or on the breath, if the breath is still aware, you're still aware of the breath, whatever happens. In terms of some of the different experiences we have, there's always other people who have had even more amazing experiences. Like Ajahn Man said when he started meditating, he just like floated out into the middle of the sky, just floating in the sky. Ajahn Sao, Ajahn Man's teacher, he said sometimes the rapture and the happiness so strong he just levitated off the ground and he used to doubt whether he was really floating up so he this wasn't just his mind it was actually his body floating up so he doubted it so one time he just opened his eyes am I really floating he looked down and broke his concentration and fell down with a thud and bruised his hip so after that, he didn't want to open his eyes, so he, but he wanted to test whether he's really floating, so he put a matchbox up on the rafter of his hut. When he floated up, kept his eyes shut, he just gently put his arm out, picked up the matchbox, put it in his lap, and then he floated down again. Now these are meditation masters with great 
samadhi, a lot of barami. But many, many people have these kind of experiences, feel like floating up, sometimes great light comes out. All can be a bit distracting, so always return to the breath. Maintain mindfulness of that and all these other experiences you'll notice, they come and go impermanent. Your thoughts come and go, try not to let yourself get distracted. When you feel very, very calm and content, then maybe turn to contemplate the body. Look at your own body. If, you, if no image of the body arises, well, try and generate an image of your own body. See your own body. Start contemplating the body. See the 32 parts of the body. Go through them one by one. Because if your mind is very peaceful, you should be able to do that. Once the mind is peaceful, you go through the body, contemplate each part, look at it, ask yourself, is this really a self? Is it me, mine? What happens to this body part over time? How does it change? How does it age? What happens when the body dies? When the body dies, the mind and body separate. You're looking at, looking at the impermanence of this body through the peaceful mind. What are the different branches of Buddhism? What are their features, similarities and differences? Well, I'm not an expert. I've read a bit, heard a bit. This branch of Buddhism is what we call Theravada, and it's the forest tradition, as you'll find. Our roots are in Thailand. Ajahn Chah lived there, and many of the our teachers lived in uh, northeast Thailand. As far as the other branches of Buddhism, we have like you've written, Mahayana, Zen, uh, Vajrayana. You will find them even in Melbourne. There's uh, Tibetan Buddhist temples, Chinese Zen temples. Uh, it's just natural, isn't it? When a good teaching like Buddhism arises in the world, people want good things. People want to be happy. So over time, those teachings have spread around the world because people all want something good. They want, want to be happy, so they started practicing. But also people in different countries have different cultural background, the weather and the living conditions in each country are a little bit different, language is different. So over time you do get changes. Some, most of these changes are just externals. The heart of the Buddhist teaching is always the same. Uh, the, the path of practice is, is, is always the same. The Four Noble Truths that brought the Buddha to enlightenment, that he penetrated, they're the same. So you'll find, I think, even the Dalai Lama, when he comes to Melbourne, he still talks about the Four Noble Truths. But obviously the way people talk about the Dhamma, 
some of the rituals, chants, scriptures do vary. But in the end, it's all you know, learning about this body, this mind, this heart. Is it peaceful or is it suffering? If it's suffering, why? What do I need to do to bring it back to peace? A very simple, very direct teaching the Buddha gave. And you can find that expressed in all these different traditions. Do monks stay current with world news and affairs? Is this important? Sometimes it's important. If, you, if there's going to be a war or something, if Australia declared war on New Zealand, I'd want to know about it because it might affect us. Get prepared. You know, monks have been trained to use wisdom, so sometimes world affairs affect us. So you need to use wisdom to see what you need to do. Uh, when the news says there's a very heavy thunderstorm coming, you know, oh, I better peg down my tent more. <laughs> I mean, if you're really sharp, you might just see the thunder clouds coming and know. But it's quicker and easier if you get the news from somebody rings you up or you read a newspaper or something. Uh, most world affairs don't really matter too much because you'll notice a lot of the same old same old thing isn't it politics economy cost of living laws different groups of people conflicting you know you can learn a lot you learn from the news where people break the five precepts and the sort of trouble they get into when they do conflict and unhappiness all over the place can be a bit overwhelming sometimes, you get very sad, don't you? Read the news or look at the news, it becomes a bit depressing. So you have to try and keep equanimity and use the Brahmaviharas when you're dealing with the world. The world's a big place and there's many people in it. Some are wise, some not so wise. So use Brahmavihara Dhamma. So you have a basic attitude of goodwill to all. Wish them all well. Those who are suffering try to develop the attitude and hope that they can get out of their suffering. Those who are heading for suffering but haven't reached it yet, you hope that they change course and don't go into that suffering. Those who are out of suffering, you can be happy for them. Those who have freed themselves from suffering or are in the process of, can be happy, happy for them. But there is a lot of suffering in the world, so we also have to have upeka, the fourth Brahmavihara. We have to be able to be balanced in our view and know, well, there is a lot of suffering in the world and we can't personally solve it all. We can't sort it all out. We wish them all well and what little we can do, we will do. But I think what the Buddha was encouraging was that we all help the world and the suffering of the world by being a good example ourselves in our own practice. You know, it's very difficult to help, say, uh, people who are starving in another country or where there's a war or something, but we can practice mindfulness in daily life, try to live our life in a good way, be kind to other people around us, 
that much we can do. We can learn to free our own minds from greed, anger and delusion. That we can do. So, you know, a superficial knowledge of the world's affairs is okay and it can be have some use. But generally we need to be looking at ourselves more. And that's that's where the place of practice is. I've never heard on the news somebody saying, oh, today there was somebody enlightened. <laughs> so that's about the only news I would really like to hear. I like it when I hear news that somebody was meditating and they got really peaceful. That kind of news is good. Somebody had deep insight. Or when you hear the news, in the time of the Buddha, I mean, the biggest news was the Buddha, wasn't it? They said that news traveled really quick around northern India from village to village. You know, instead of talking about the price of rice or the price of buffaloes or whatever, people said, oh, do you know the Buddha has come? And everyone knew what a Buddha meant, the word, you know, Sama Sambuddha. Everyone said, oh, that is someone I want to meet. Apparently in India, that's how everyone felt. Even if they weren't Buddhist and they didn't become a disciple of the Buddha, they still had a sense of, oh, this is something special. That's, that's some news that's important. So when the Buddha traveled into a village or a town, everyone would come. They'd all come. They'd all want to meet him. They'd all want to uh, pay respects to him, all want to listen to him or offer food or listen to his Dhamma. Big news when the Buddha was around. So I think that's the kind of news I would like to hear. Last question. Is there any particular reason for the order we take the precepts in? There probably is. Um, I think it's mainly priorities. You know, if you can't do anything else, keep the first precept. Because it's the beginning, isn't it? The beginning of, of spiritual practice to respect life, respect your own life, respect others. Try to refrain from killing and harming life, whether it's small little things or big things like human beings. If you can keep that precept, then you make yourself a lot of good karma and you stop yourself making a lot of bad karma. The Buddha always said, if we harm other beings, it will come back to us, often very quickly and very harshly. You, know, you, you kill a chicken, maybe you break your leg. You, know, you kill a cow, you fall ill, and so on. You know, things happen. We harm others, it comes back to us very quickly. That's the law of karma. So if you're keeping the first precept, this is a cause for future good health, long life, happiness on that level and each precept same you keep you respect other people's property you respect other people in terms of one's sexual relations one doesn't uh, commit acts of sexual misconduct harmful sex exploitative sex one is careful with one's speech one doesn't take intoxicants you know all of these are creating Happiness for oneself, happiness for others, and probably it's in order of priority. You know, if everyone is killing, you know, 
society is like a real mess if everyone's killing, you know, like a war. The worst kind of society to live in is a war zone, isn't it? Everything becomes difficult, you're living in fear. So the first precept is vital for society to live together peacefully. Second is similar, if everyone's stealing from each other, you can't trust anyone, you, know, you just can't be peaceful, it's difficult to practice. So you want to see that value, the value of that for yourself, even if others don't see it, see the value of respecting other people's property. So you go on like this, you contemplate the value of the precepts and how they support your practice. You develop mindfulness and clarity when you keep the precepts. The more refined your awareness of your intention, because intention is what leads you to keep the precepts or break them, the more mindfulness you have of your intention, you know, the quicker you're purifying your mind, you're freeing it from suffering. So if you have the intention to kill or to steal or to say something harmful, you see that intention and you say, I'm not going to follow it, I'll throw it out, I'll let it go. You're purifying your mind very directly there. So Ajahn Chah always said, precepts lead directly into meditation. You maintain the precepts well, your mind will calm down easily. You'll maintain mindfulness easily. They say for Sodapanna, one who's reached the first stage of enlightenment, stream entra, they quite naturally don't break the precepts. So even on when their li own life is at risk, they won't break the precepts. So Sodapanna won't kill, won't steal, won't commit acts of sexual misconduct, they won't lie or use abusive speech, they won't drink, take drugs. So even a Sodapanna, if they're threatened by somebody, they'd find some other way to solve the problem. So they maybe talk their way out of it or run away or try and find a way to solve the conflict if somebody was threatening them. Or if absolutely nothing would work, maybe they even end up dying, who knows. These are all hypothetical situations, but the Sotapanna would not kill because the intention to kill has been removed from the mind. It just doesn't come up. It's no longer an option. And similar with the other precepts. So we talked for a lot, long time. Maybe I'll leave it there tonight. Can uh, contemplate these words. <laughs>